This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 67 is something like, what can we know? And we read Rudolf Carnap's The Logical Structure of the World from 1928. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, reducible to a series of phenomenal occurrences in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And this is Matt Teichman, desubjectivizing myself into a structural concept in Chicago, Illinois. Thank you. Raising the bar again, Matt. Matt, you sound very Seth-like tonight. Oh, yeah? Does that mean depressed? or? <laughs> I think that we can reduce the appearances of Matt if we logically deconstruct them into basic Seth elements, is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. I see. Because Seth get- forms the basis of all-knowing. <laughs> He's the yes. axes of knowing. He's the given. He's what, you know, Wilfred Sellers critiqued in Empiricism and the Philosophy of Mind when he Critique the myth of the given. It was, it, he should have called it the myth of Seth. And Seth was actually very annoyed at being critiqued like that. He took it very personally. That's why he's not uh, here. He's still recovering. That's right. To get a good sense of Carnap's project, we read pages 1 through 136, plus the subsequent chapter summaries, which are pages 166 through 171, 240 through 243, 298 through 300. You don't have to remember that. Go look on partiallyexaminedlife.com. Okay. The question I had put at the beginning of this was just the generic epistemological, what can we know? And I think Carnap thinks that he's doing epistemology, but I wanted to maybe start with that question. What is the question he's trying to answer here? It's a little strange. Yeah. He's uh, trying to put forth a theory by which you can reduce all of the things that are knowable into a common base language about basic things, basic Seths. Well, he says his uh, first paragraph says... The present investigations aim to establish a constructional system that is an epistemological system of objects or concepts. The word object here always used in the widest sense, namely, for anything about which a statement can be made. Thus, among objects, we count not only things, but also properties and classes, relations and extension and intention, states and events, what is actual as well as what is not. Yes. I think the goal is almost sort of like a reform of philosophical discourse a different way to have philosophical conversations and an attempt to get somewhere and sort of head off potential impasses, figuring out like, what are the issues you actually can get to the bottom of and resolve? And what are the issues you have to just sort of step back and say, well, there's no way to really progress on these. There's something about the way you just said that that makes it sound like his project is something in common with Kant, in that Kant was trying to show a kind of saving science from the skepticism of Hume. But I think Carnap is at least agnostic about the question about whether or not the construction that he's talking about would be something we make or whether we discover it about the world. But the way he goes through this project, I think that he really means to do exactly what Matt says, a kind of reform of the way we're speaking. And so that in the big sense, If we learned to talk in this way that he outlines and restricted ourselves in this way, we would make progress in science and in philosophy. We would avoid all kinds of paradoxes. That's the conceit running through the whole book, that we ought to learn to talk this way. Though 
he seems to imply that he's only provided the generic rules for it, that it has yet to be decided what the particular construction would be. So it's a little bit like saying that he's outlining the basic mathematics of it, but you have yet to do the physics on it, where you would generate actual functions. He's left open the generating the you know the law of gravity because he's only worried about the way in which you write down F equals G M M over R squared. One thing we should note is that in the reading selection that we had, we didn't really get a lot of this sort of higher level positivist critique of philosophy or metaphysics, right? It's kind of implied that that's what this is for the sake of establishing a way of talking about things that will help free us from confusion, let's say, and help make our thinking and our language clear. But he's not, there's not really many places in the, at least in this selection that we read where he's outright saying this is for the sake of turning philosophical problems into pseudo problems, even though that's another book that he wrote in the, the same year. I mean, one of the things he's trying to do, obviously, is he's he's trying to figure out how all these different domains of knowledge are related. There's physics, and then there's sociology, and there's psychology, and there's a puzzling lack of unity between these different branches of knowledge. What's really interesting is this idea that, in fact, you can, at least from a logical point of view, achieve this unified foundation for all of these different domains which don't on the face of it seem reducible to each other his sense of reduction of course is going to turn out to be quite limited right we should try to say what kind of reductions these are well you should just mark your little presentation on the website as prelude to this podcast i thought was great and i thought you really captured and distilled down what he says in you know his 200 pages i sort of wish i just read that and I would have been good. <laughs> so you should summarize it. <laughs> summarize the summary. No, you should tell us what Carnap <laughs> says. It's a program of reductionism, but it's maybe not the kind of reductionism that philosophers today or people familiar with, say, the talk about reductionism in philosophy of mind would assume. So like in philosophy of mind, when you're talking about reductionism, it's because people don't like talking about the mental. The mental seems weird we're scientists. We study things that can be measured. The mental cannot be measured. So we have to then talk about the behavior. So if you're a behaviorist, you would try to say, there are no beliefs. There's just people's disposition to say something when you ask them. Or a more modern version of that is to say, mental things are brain states. When you have a belief or an emotion or something that is equivalent to, like it's just a different perspective on, say, some objectively studyable state of your brain. And so then we could look at different brains and say, what constitutes a belief? There's a lot of hand-waving that goes on to say, you know, we're just, we're setting up a program for neuroscience to follow. Well, this is 1928. So he certainly didn't have that in mind, although there are gestures toward that. And in fact, apparently after this book was published, he said, well, you know, maybe if I did it again, I would try to have a physical basis like brain states, or maybe he was talking about quarks or, you know, (laughs) some basic elements of physics as his basis. But Right now, he's working on a basically Humean paradigm, which is to say, remember, Hume thought all there was was just, well, ideas. And we call some of them impressions because they're kind of the more vivid ideas that we have. And some of them are just old ideas, recollections, things like that. They're the ones that have sat around in our brains a while. So he's running with that. So his basic unit that he picks, 
ends up being what he calls the elementary experience, which we can get into what that exactly means, because that seems like a, a difficult point. You know, how do you chop experiences into some atomic elementary experiences? But in any case, he thinks there are such things and thinks that then if we talk about, say, myself, then really what that is, is a synthesis that we are just combining in some way all these different elementary experiences, and we're calling it the self. And, and the same thing with a physical object. When we, we're, we just have a lot of different perceptions, say, of this physical object that we group together and we call it a physical object. This should sound, actually, Carnap was in some classes from Husserl. He took a class from him. So if you were listening to our Husserl episode, he's kind of doing the same thing. He's doing phenomenology. He's saying, let's examine our experiences and see how these units like the self, like physical objects are put together on the basis of these momentary experiences. And then he thinks like, if we're going to build anything higher than that, if we're going to talk about, if I'm going to talk about your beliefs, I might have direct access to my own emotional states, my own ideas, but I don't have them based on yours. I must be intuiting yours from your behavior, from the things you say. So that's a different kind of synthesis, right? We've got the phenomenal that is we start with my own experiences and we build the physical out of that and then i build your minds out of these particular perceptions of the physical of your body say and then if we're going to talk about social things well that's a higher level of abstraction from that ethical things a higher level of abstraction from that so just in that way of describing it he's not actually saying we shouldn't talk about ethics anymore he's just saying that all talk about ethics is somehow reducible to talk about psychological states my psychological states, your psychological states, which, yeah, if you're an ethicist, that sounds like you're deriving ought from is, which is something a lot of ethicists don't like. Well, I just want to add something about this concept of construction and reduction, which is the same thing in two different directions. You could go about construction or reduction in a number of different ways. And one of them would be to treat the most elementary things as, say, some sort of physical object. So for instance, you could imagine constructing a reductionist system where the most ultimate things are like the smallest hypothetical particles of physics that we could find, right? And mm -hmm. then you construct higher and higher levels of the physical world out of that. And then you make a another construction leap because there's a, obviously a relationship between brain states and psychology. So you could go that route. Carnap doesn't object to that. He makes pains to say, yes, you can actually choose a number of different ways of constructing the system, but he chooses what he calls these, the auto-psychological domain, that because in a way it's simpler. And it's also, he thinks, epistemically primary, which we mm -hmm. can go into what that means in a second. But it basically, you know, you take a single individual's experiences and thoughts and emotions, and the construction is logical. It's not to say that the actual world is somehow really constructed of some individual, you know, that's, that would be solipsism, but of the individual's psychological states, but that there's this logical relationship between psychological states and the world such that you can logically construct the world from those states. And you can even sort of retrieve this intersubjective objective world, even if you start from this seemingly solipsistic position of an individual in their particular psychological states. You have to also add in the fundamental relation, right? So the experiences are the atoms of this world, this construction, but he chooses there to be one fundamental relation, which is the relation of similarity. Right. So he doesn't want to 
his construction, he wants to have the fewest elements possible. And so we'll have these elementary experiences, but then we also need something formal or relational. And he doesn't want to talk about, you know, as Mark pointed out in his post, particular properties. And in fact, when we look at these elementary experiences, these are sort of gestalt experiences. You take the totality and take any time slice of a human being's existence and everything that's in the perceptual field, every auditory experience, touch, all of that, and even the unconscious aspect of that or the pre-conscious aspect of that, stuff we're not paying attention to, all of that goes into the single elementary experience, which is atomic. Most people, and I certainly had this misconception, think of Carnap as trying to do a typical positives thing of saying, okay, the ultimate atoms in our system are the spatio-temporal point in the visual field that has a certain color, let's say, and that would be atomic. But actually, that'll end up being a quasi-object that you derive. That'll be something that actually is constructed, and it's really a synthesis, he says, but it, you know, he calls this quasi-analysis because effectively, by moving to a different constructional level, I'm probably not making much sense now, but speaking Carnap's language, but essentially, even though it looks like you analyze, say, an elementary experience into these little points in the visual field and so on, that's not a logical analysis. Really, that's a logical synthesis. So the, the starting atomic point, this elementary experience, is in some sense actually larger than these little bits and pieces of it that you get as you proceed forward in the system. That's a really fascinating part of the system. And as you point out, Dylan, we'll get to this ultimate relation that he thinks you can use to sort of, what is we call it, remembered similarity? Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. Recollected similarity? So you, that recollected similarity is the thing basically by comparing, again, these gestalt, holistic elementary experiences is through comparisons and setting up classes of similarities between those experiences that we actually quasi-analyze them into bits and pieces with properties. The properties sort of fall out of the overall relationship of similarity between these holistic elementary experiences, which is really a, a fascinating way to go about this. But I'm not inclined necessarily to disagree that we would have experiences and the way we develop our concepts is by fundamental similarities that we recognize between them, but that I don't see them as elementary as he seems to think that they are. Right. There seems to be a lot more to say about what you mean by saying that one thing is similar to another and a lot more going into these elementary experiences. Yeah, I like the, the way uh, Mark put it earlier, you know, in terms of contrasting it with present day reductionism, which seems very different. If you're one of those people who wants to say, ah, there's no such thing as emotions or beliefs. There's just, you know, this or that neuron firing and that's all emotions and beliefs really are. The really are part is kind of what's missing from Carnap. And in that sense, it's really a much more modest reductionist project. Even if we define, just to take, you know, one example, physical objects in terms of private sense experiences, that's not to say that the sense experiences are what's really real and the physical things are just sort of extrapolations from them. He wants to actually, to borrow an expression from what Dylan said earlier, be agnostic about that question. Are our sense experiences the real thing or are the physical objects the real thing? And, you know, he wants to say, well, there's a, a set of relations between them. When the sense experiences vary in this way, the physical objects vary in that way and they're sort of connected. They're, you know, we can draw up correlations between them, but it's not our place to say which one is the real thing. 
Well, but see, this is exactly the point that he wants to talk about the relations being existing, but there being no relata, essentially. That whatever the relations are, that they have no implication about what the things are that are being related to one another. Yeah. And that's the way he gets around any kind of metaphysical claim about what the objects themselves are, or even if you wanted to deny that there was anything in the objects themselves, he wants to even deny that you have to have any implied claim about what the objects themselves are in your construction, and that you can rely on just these relations. I hesitate to jump right in here into criticizing his view. Yeah, let's say what... Well, we might as well get it out there. I mean, because this relates to the fundamentals of the project, is if you're going to try to build the world out of something basic, there's a problem there, and we've, we've discussed it in various ways in, in some other episodes. Let's say you think that the basic thing is some kind of substance, and then properties get added to it. Well, we had a Buddhism episode that says that doesn't make any sense because once you take away all the properties from a thing, what's left? You'd have to have this idea of there being bare particulars, which, what the hell is that? Well, we don't ever get bare particulars, right? We're just getting these gestalt elementary experiences. Yes. Well, Carnap isn't trying to do a metaphysical reduction regardless. It's like you're saying, he's not actually making metaphysical claims about anything. In fact, he thinks metaphysical claims themselves are incoherent. They don't make any right. sense. They cannot be expressed in a language. So this is all expressing, I'm glad we got that point out that he got from Wittgenstein's Tractatus at the beginning, that there are certain things, a lot of the things that philosophy says really shouldn't be said. They're not sayable in our language if the language is correctly understood. They're only result of confusion on our part. And so that's partly how he gets at this, is that when he's talking about a reduction, it's not a matter of saying these bigger things are built out of the smaller things in a metaphysical sense, or that, say, mental states are metaphysically equivalent to brain states, so there's only kind of one thing in the world. He doesn't care about ontology, right? That was Quine's concern in the last one. Quine, who was critiquing this, in fact, and saying, look, Carnap, you say you don't care about ontology, but you're making ontological claims all over the place. The fact yes. that you're using quantifiers and ranging over things means that you're counting them in your ontology. And in a certain way, you can see Carnap is saying, okay, fine. Ultimately, say, talk of mental states, talk of physical objects, all this stuff, it is reducible. So those are not even objects. Let's call them quasi-objects. The only real objects are these, whatever are going to be the simples of the system. But I guess the point I wanted to make about, you know, if you're going to start a system off from simples, you have to have an idea of how those simples connect with each other. It's my contention that that kind of project doesn't work for a reason very similar to what was coming up with the idea of bare particulars is that if you have these core unanalyzable elementary experiences, Carnap is going to say, well, you can still group these according to similarity. But I would have to say, what do you mean, according to similarity? If you group a bunch of experiences and say, this class of experiences constitutes the color red, then I would have to say, well, what is it about those different experiences that makes you put them in that category as opposed exactly. to the other experiences? And he's, he has to say, there is no answer to that question. We look at a group of experiences and red arises out of that. But really, does that make any sense to you? He'll even go further than that, right? He'll say that that relationship of similarity does not imply anything about what the things that are being related to one another are or have to do with one or, or the characteristics of those experiences. I mean, I'm using all kinds of words that are violating his argument that we wouldn't have any kind of ontological or metaphysical language, but I think it just betrays the problem in this case. 
is that if you're going to speak of things that are related to one another, while the relationship might even be primary or very important in some way, to say that there's no content at all about the things that are being related seems impossible. I think the idea behind this complex things made out of basic things talk is something like, look, if we're going to systematically describe the relations between two kinds of statement, just as a methodological premise, we have to say that one is quote unquote basic and and we're going to take for granted as a primitive and we're going to define the other in terms of that. Right. But, you know, I could have just as well started by taking the physical things as basic and reconstructing the psychological things out of them if I felt like it. Right. But that's just the way coming up with a rigorous theory of something is. You have to, for the narrative purposes of the theory, take one thing to be basic. But, you know, we shouldn't take that to suggest that the thing that we're defining the other things in terms of is more real. Right. And he takes pains to say that what he's not doing is composition into holes, for instance. It's not the case that when you construct something, this thing is like a whole and that what it's constructed of are its parts. That's where he gets into talk about, what does he call it? A complex? It's a logical complex. Logical complex. Yes. Can we give an example before we yeah. go on? Because it, so the, the one I already gave of the self... Back to Hume, Hume thought that the self was a bundle of impressions, but Carnap can't say it's just a bunch of impressions bundled together. He has to say it's a class of impressions, and the class is different than the whole. A class is an ontologically different order of things than just a collection, because just think about the way it works in the real world, that you know, if you've got a blade of grass... And then you gather a bunch of blades of grass together. Okay, you've got a hole that's a bunch of blades of grass. Okay, that's different than the class grass. Even if you gathered every single actual blade of grass in the world together, that hole would still be different than the class grass, which you could define, say, by a property. You know, is something that is green and grows in such a way, blah, blah. It might be a very long property to really specify it exactly. But ultimately, he doesn't want to involve ostension. You shouldn't have to point to this blade of grass and that blade of grass and this blade of grass and say, this is what I mean by grass. You need to be able to do it via a description. And that is a definition. And that's objective in a way that pointing out something is not. Here's another example. Suppose we had a brick wall and we said to ourselves, okay, we're going to establish this reducibility relationship or construction relationship between the, the wall as a whole and then the individual bricks. So, for instance, we could make some statements about the wall as a whole, which would be the same for the statement of each individual brick, like has a certain color or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's not the case for everything that you can predicate of the wall. The wall is a certain length. That doesn't mean that each individual brick in the wall is of a certain length. But what you can do logically there is say, I have a certain set of statements I can make about the wall, and they have this logical relationship to statements I can make about each individual brick. But that doesn't mean that that relationship is compositional in the way that the bricks making up the wall is compositional. Mm -hmm. That's an entirely different kind of reducibility. This is on page nine, where he's distinguishing, you know, the whole is composed of its elements, they are its parts. He's contrasting this notion of a whole with the independent logical complex, does not have this relationship to its elements, So the things that you logically reduce to are not compositional elements. They're not the parts of the thing that you've reduced. 
So there's an example in synthetic geometry. You start from points, lines, surfaces as elements, and then the higher constructs are complexes of these elements. But all the statements about these constructs are ultimately statements about the elements. We should say something about this idea that what he's doing is extensional, where we take sets of statements that say a given one statement is reducible to a series of other statements has to do with the fact that they have the same extension, which is to say they apply to the same set of objects, which is one of the shortcomings of the system, which is that it doesn't preserve sense, which is something we can talk about later and which something Carnap acknowledges. This should sound familiar, that something is reducible to something else if you can substitute it in a sentence and retain the truth of that sentence. Yeah, exactly. Like we talked about in the Frigg episode. Yeah. Yeah. And the Frigg episode, I think, is important to understanding this because there are two ways you can look at that. You can pay attention only to the objects actually being referred to, the reference, or you can pay attention to the way in which they're being referred to. So if you want to say, Clark Kent is my brother, the same as saying Superman is my brother. If you're doing extensional logic, you might say, then yes, those are the same because they have the same reference. And so any sentence that has Clark Kent is my brother, you could take the word Clark Kent out, throw in the word Superman, and it, it would still be the same. If Clark Kent is in fact my brother, then Superman is in fact my brother. And, and in fact, it would go the other way as well, the implication. But if you're doing an intentional logic, then you have to pay attention to the fact that Clark Kent and Superman are names with different connotations, and not everybody knows that they're the same person. Well, really, everybody, (laughs) every reader of the comic knows they're the same person. So there's actually nobody that that would fool. But in the fictional world depicted, there are people that don't know that that's the same. And so you could not substitute that in. So if if the sentence was, say, Lois believes that Clark is my brother... Well, you can't substitute in Lois believes that Superman is my brother because Lois is a dumbass and can't figure out that the same guy, you know, is just with glasses on. Yeah. Right. So that's called an intentional context, putting it in believes. And he's saying, look, again, that's kind of a subjective thing. That's not what we're interested in science. Science is all about structural properties of things. And so when you're considering what the meaning scientifically of a statement is, you don't pay attention to the linguistic connotations. You pay attention to what is actually being referred to, which, you know, it might take some scientific investigation right. to figure that out then. You have an example just like that, actually, with what he calls the heteropsychological domain and the physical domain. So heteropsychological in this context just means thoughts and feelings had by other people. And physical means, well, physical. So let's say I happen to know that whenever Mark twitches his eyebrows, that means he's angry. Actually, sorry. Let's say that there's a psychological law that states that whenever you observe a certain behavior in Mark, like he twitches his eyebrows, that correlates with 100% accuracy with his being angry. That's just to say that whenever the one statement is true, the other statement is also true. But it's not necessary to say that you can know both of those things. Like you might believe one of those things and not the other. The attitude you might take to those two statements might be different, even if one is true whenever the other is also true. Right. In the ordinary sense, they don't mean the same thing. Exactly. But in one sense that it's substitutable, since when one is true, the other is always going to be true. Since the two statements logically imply each other, then yes, you will preserve truth whenever you substitute one sentence for the other in an extensional system. Yeah. So what Carnap acknowledges is that his constructions don't preserve sense. You lose sense. If there's some sense associated with it, when you move from one level to another, that's lost. All it preserves is extension. And I wanted to give an example of a what this means when you're going from one level to another and preserving extension. And I, 
page 81, for instance, he gives an example of temperature equilibrium is X stands to Y and the relation of temperature equilibrium. So there you have this relation temperature equilibrium, and you can reduce that by giving essentially a definition of it, or it's necessary in sufficient conditions, or even what he, I think he'll call an indicator, like a scientific indicator. There are lots of ways to think about this, but his example here on page 81 is that what you can reduce that relation of temperature equilibrium to is if bodies X and Y are brought into spatial contact, either directly or through the mediation of other bodies, then they show neither increase nor decrease in temperature. So you take a relation and then you sort of define it. And you, the definition works because it preserves extension, which is to say all these different pairs in the world that are X related to Y via this relationship, that's preserved when you go from the relationship of temperature equilibrium to this new, the sentence that it's been reduced to, or the sentences that it's been reduced to, or the series of relationships that it's been reduced to, like spatial contact and so on and so forth. You'll get the same extensions for X and Y, the same reference in the world will apply here. I don't know if that helps, but I wanted to get the sense that, you know, what reduction means here and what we mean when we say it preserves extension. Right. We said it's not a metaphysical reduction. It's also not supposed to be an accurate description of psychology, even though a lot of these we're saying, oh, well, I can figure out that there's a physical object there by putting together a lot of these experiences, or I figure out what red is by putting together a lot of these experiences. But it's actually, he's trying to give a schematic. So maybe it has an application to psychology. Like maybe if you can figure out, this is the logical schema. And in fact, later philosophers of mind, they call this functionalism. So it's like you're coming up with the boxes in a flowchart in a computer program to say, first comes these individual experiences and that those logically entail, those are indicators of, those are synthesized into the physical objects, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't say exactly what psychological steps are gone through to get there. And in fact, it might be that psychologically we do it in a much more roundabout way than what he's describing. But he just wants to say, these are the logical entailments between the phenomena that science has to study. And so it sort of gets to the shortest possible, at least the shortest that he can come up with or the simplest possible way of reducing one thing to another. So I think that that idea, the, the indicators that you were saying, so, yeah, right. The example that Matt gave of the twitching indicating anger, you know, it's not necessary that psychologically I see the twitching and I decide that it's anger. It doesn't matter what I do psychologically. Maybe there are many ways, maybe I smell you and I can tell you're angry. And he thinks, he thinks it's very overdetermined how we determine these things. There's probably lots of ways, but if it is sufficient, if we can establish a psychophysical law, in other words, it always happens that when there's a twitch there, there's anger, that's yeah. enough for the reduction to take place. Yeah. So that wherever there's anger in the world, there will be twitching. So there'll be coextensive in the sense that any object to which you can attribute anger, you can also attribute this property of twitching. Yeah, but it's merely extensional because you might not necessarily know about that correlation. You might not necessarily right. know just because the eyebrows are twitching, that means he's angry. But yeah, and it just doesn't mean that that's all that anger is. Right, absolutely not. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.